Some women cope with excessive hair growth in unexpected areas of the body. Hirsutism is a condition where women grow coarse, dark hair in areas usually associated with men. They include the face, the chest, or the back. To better understand the physiology of hirsutism and the treatment options that exist, we have Dr. Amy McMichael, an expert on the topic. Dr. Amy McMichael has served as the chair of the dermatology department at Wake Forest University of Medicine for over two decades. Her areas of expertise include hair and scalp disorders and skin of color. Dr. McMichael is the co-chief co editor of the medical textbook, Hair and Scalp Disorders for Medical, Surgical, and Cosmetic Treatments, where she co-authored a chapter on hirsutism and hypertrichosis. She's a past president of the Skin of Color Society and a past chair of the National Medical Association Dermatology Section. She also served as the vice president of the Women's Dermatologic Society. And to top it off in her free time, she's also the editor on the editorial board for JAMA Derm, Cosmetic Dermatology, and The Dermatologist. Dr. McMichael, welcome. I'm looking forward to our discussion today on hirsutism. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Hannah. Um, I'll, I'll have to just make one correction. I've only been chair for 10 years. I've been at the mm -hmm. department for 27 years, but only chair for 10. So I, mm -hmm. I don't want to take any, steal anyone's thunder. <laughs> <laughs> I think 10 years is enough to, for us to know that you're definitely an expert. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. So I want to start off with answering um, maybe a basic question for many and not so basic for others. What is hirsutism and how does it differ from hypertrichosis? Well, I think it's what you said. You know, I think it's um, when women have hair growth in a place that is con usually considered a secondary characteristic of male, um, you know, of the male uh, species, of the species, you know, male humans. So, um, you know, it's, it's just like you said, facial hair um, that's terminal uh, on the, you know, upper lip, chin, chest, um, around the lower abdomen where uh, men typically have secondary characteristic uh, hair growth. Um, so those are places that, you know, we kind of think, okay, that should not be happening in women, but we know, you know, obviously it does a lot of the time and there are lots of reasons for that. Hypertrichosis, on the other hand, can be any kind of hair. So it could be vellus hair, which is the very fine baby hairs, intermediate hairs, which are kind of between those little fine vellus hairs and terminal hairs. And it could be anywhere on the body, but not in those areas that are typically thought of as a male secondary characteristic. What causes it and who is most at risk? So hirsutism is typically caused by um, some unknown you know, hormonal variants. And, you know, if you look at the majority of people, um, you know, and, and you all comers of hirsutism, not those who necessarily seek out dermatologists, but if you look at those who um, come in, it's, it's usually some sort of ovarian abnormality. And a lot of times it's just, you know, that the um, receptors on the hair follicles in that particular patient, you know, probably, you know, this is genetic, you know, from some person in their family, um, they're, even though they may not have higher levels of, of male hormones circulating around, their follicles sort of bind to the, the hormones that are there, because we all, all women, of course, have androgens or male hormones, their follicles bind to those androgens and just get stimulated by them. So in an individual patient, unless it's something that we think is going to harm them 
um, you know, medically down the line, we usually don't pursue um, a tremendous amount of, of evaluation. Now, in a, in a person that comes to me with her system, I take a very detailed history about their menstrual period because that's going to be the most sensitive thing to hormonal abnormality, um, you know, about uh, any other secondary male characteristics that they might be experiencing, um, fertility issues. Um, problems with uh, deepening of their voice, clitoral enlargement, any, you know, hyperactive sex drive, you know, any of these things um, can tell us, okay, there's more here to the story than just facial hair. We need to kind of get, um, get more information. And a general person who, you know, has a normal uh, menstrual cycle, very predictable periods, you don't have to really do a whole, whole lot. I might get uh, free and total testosterone in that person just to make sure I'm not missing anything. But in the other person that I talked about where they have a lot, of, a lot of other things going on, that's when you have to sort of set into a search. Look okay. at TSH, you know, look at your hormone levels, total, free and total testosterone. THEAS is a little bit outdated now, so I don't get that as much. Um, and I might get LH and FSH, and that's usually kind of where I stop. And then I start working with my, my friends in endocrinology, sometimes in OBGYN. Very good. So, you know, you mentioned testosterone levels. Does it usually, if you have higher testosterone, is that a direct correlation with the degree of how much hair you might see on your chin or in your chest? Certainly there can be that correlation, but it's not always. So as I said, people can have, you know, completely normal um, free and total testosterone, but it's just that their um, receptors are just sort of upregulated. And so they have a tremendous amount of hair on their face um, or, you know, and or chest. So it, it can correlate, but it's not a direct correlation in every patient. And what are the typical, you know, I understand that there's usually non-androgenetic um, causes and then versus androgenetic causes. Can you share with us what those are? Yeah, so as I said, you know, the um, thyroid hormone abnormalities can certainly set this into motion. Pituitary abnormalities, so if you have a pituitary tumor or overproduction of pituitary hormones, that can start a cycle, um, you know, where your, um, you know, hair growth starts and as well as other things. Um, outside medications can do it. So if you take medications that have testosterone in them, um, you know, that, that sometimes happens um, inadvertently when people take uh, medications that they don't know have steroid in them, like, uh, you know, medications for weight loss or um, for energy. Uh, a lot of times they don't recognize that DHAS will turn into testosterone at some point in the cycle. Um, so it can happen inadvertently, but it can also happen if people are doing muscle building exercises and they're taking steroid for those reasons. Um, you know, those are probably the major. You can have ovarian tumors, um, tumors of other kind that just have hormonal production with a lot of, you know, very high corticosteroid production, even corticosteroids can do it. Um, although you typically see more hypertrichosis with drugs like cyclosporin and that sort of thing, you sometimes see a little bit of hirsutism as well. Is there a typically a relationship to infertility or this has, you know, there's some discussion that maybe if you have hair in your chin or hirsutism, obviously with PCOS, um, that can definitely be a correlation with infertility. Um, but do you see that across the board or it really varies based on the cause? I think it really varies. I think that, um, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome is, is really an umbrella term that houses a lot of different kinds of um, disorders underneath it. So um, under that disorder, you have sort of those people that have that upregulation of, you know, 
hormone receptors, uh, as well as those people that have, you know, really pretty significant um, other issues like fertility kind of problems, that sort of thing. And I, and I don't, you know, depending on whose study you look at, if you look at the endocrinology studies, you get one percentage of, you know, how that how that goes. And if you look at the people that come and see OBGYNs, it looks like another thing. And if you look at the people that come and see dermatologists, it looks like another thing. So we don't have great specific, you know, guidelines on, you know, how many of each there are. Um, but I do think that, you know, you take, when you're seeing patients as a doctor, you know, you take each individual patient and sort of go with what they are telling you. You know, I have a lot of young women that come in and they really have no idea what their fertility issues are because they haven't tried to have a baby. You know, they've right. either been on oral contraceptives or just, you know, on nothing and haven't ever tried. So, so sometimes we don't even have that information to go with. But if they do have, you know, other things going on, if they're overweight, difficulty losing weight, um, uh, female pattern hair loss, uh, hirsutism, then we start to get the hint and, you know, may do more workup. And obviously, you know, they, that person might be a little bit more at risk at that point. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it really does make sense to evaluate every person specifically. You now, if you look at populations, more epidemiologic, I'd say probably um, the, there is probably a one-to-one -one correlation in about, you know, 25 to 30% of people maybe. Is there ever a family history that you see? Uh, oh, yes. Uh, very, very commonly. I think that a lot of this is genetic, um, how people process their hormones. And it, and it can come from any side of the family. So the male side, the father's side, mother's side, um, you know, it could come from an, an aunt that's kind of distant and you just, hop, you know, those uh, chromosomes just hopped on and you are, you're displaying those changes. So yes, we see a, a quite, quite, quite a bit. A lot of times mothers will bring their daughters and say, I had this, I don't want them to suffer. You know, let's start working on this now. Um, so yeah, I, I, we really do see it in families. And what is the typical age range that patients start to, you know, maybe patients don't come to you right away, but where they first mm -hmm. to start to notice it um, and yeah. want help. Yeah, I think the 20s. Yeah, I think the 20s, 30s, um, you know, I think there's a couple, it's like bimodal, you know, sort of humps there. I think the 20s and 30s are when it starts for the patients that probably have those hormone receptors. And then you see another um, group is, you know, kind of when they're postmenopausal, they start getting those, you know, wiggly chin hairs. They don't like those. And it's because their estrogens are chain, you know, going down and, and that sort of thing. So you'll see a little bit more growth at that point. Um, so, but probably by and large, the, the biggest group is around the, the 30s. What diagnostic tools do you use when you're examining to really assess if this is hirsutism? Um, do you use the Ferriman-Galway scoring system? And are there other parts of the physical exam you do? Like, mm -hmm. I mean, as a dermatologist, you're probably not doing a pelvic exam, but um, I'm just curious what your typical routine is when you see a patient in clinic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I usually, you know, put them somewhere on the Fairman Galloway score, which is really a, a scale that we use mostly for research, you know, if we're trying to document where people are, and it's a nice way to sort of say, okay, out of, you know, this number, you have, you know, this much severity at this site, and, you know, then you add it all up, and obviously there's a score there, and I think that's very helpful if you're doing research. Now, if you're doing a day-to-day the only reason you might do it is so you don't have to take a picture of the person. You know, now we have charts where you can throw pictures in there. And if people don't mind, you can say, okay, we're starting here. Now we're going to start treatment, you know, whatever that treatment might be. And you don't really need to do a whole lot else in terms of, you know, 
grading them on a scale. So I look at their face. I ask, you know, I maybe look at their chest. I ask them about, you know, other areas on the body. I look to see if they have acne because that's another thing that, you know, can go along with this hormonal kind of stuff. I look to see if they have any hair loss. Um, and they may have hair loss and it may be totally unrelated to their hirsutism because there are lots of different kinds of hair loss. Um, and, um, and really that's, you know, the physical exam is all you need. You'll see a lot of times, um, you know, just the terminal hairs themselves, people do a very good job of plucking. So you have to look very closely. Sometimes you can see the stigmata of hair removal. Uh, and particularly in women of color, you can see a lot of post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation and pseudo folliculitis barbae, you know, where there's the inflammation around the hair follicle from the hair itself, as well as from the removal of the hair. So those are all giveaways. You know, a lot of times I'll have people come in and they say to me, I want to get these dark spots to go away. And <laughs> what, you know, I look, at, okay, okay, let's back up and let's <laughs> think about why the dark spots are there. They're there because the hair keeps coming out of the hair follicle and you have to remove it. And so really what we need to do is remove the hair to get the dark spots because you can chase dark spots, you know, from post-inflammatory hair pigmentation and pseudofolliculitis barbae forever and you'll never get it under control if you don't get the hairs out of there. So it's a it's a story and a reason why they uh, it's good that they come in to see a board certified dermatologist to get that story and to understand why their fight is not why they're not winning their fight against those dark spots, you know. So um, so it's a nice a nice um, way to sort of help them understand and also get treatment, get the appropriate treatment. Yeah, those dark spots can be a nuisance and often like the reason the only reason someone comes into the clinic. So I totally understand where you're, what you're saying. Um, when you met, you mentioned hair loss, which is often you say commonly seen mm-hmm. with hirsutism. Is it typically androgenetic alopecia or which is female pattern um, hair loss? Or is it, I, as you said, it could, there's so many um, different reasons why you can get hair loss, but is that the most typically correlated with uh, hirsutism? Yes, absolutely. That's what we normally see. We normally see um, pattern hair loss, you know, so thinning on the vertex scalp, maybe a little bitemporal thinning, uh, maybe a little bit of thinning around the preauricular scalp as well in the frontal in the frontal area. Um, other forms of hair loss may exist, but they're not typically associated with uh, with the hair on the face if you have polycystic ovarian syndrome. You know, so I look and I mean, obviously if somebody has a patch of hair loss and it's alopecia areata, we treat it, but I don't worry about it being um, indicative of some other underlying hormonal problem. Okay. And do you often see that hirsutism gets worse with age? I, you know, I feel like my mother all the time, she's like, I just got my chin wax, which obviously waxing your chin is not a permanent solution. Um, and like the next, and within a week, her hair is growing back. So is this common that as, as women age that it just seems to get worse and you get more hairs? Yeah, unfortunately, if that's in your genetics, yeah, it is. You know, we see those little ladies with those little you know, a little lace with those little hairs on their chins. And yeah, unfortunately, we're all headed that way. But um, yeah, obviously, some people are kind of hairless, and they won't get it. But it's very, very common, you know, as your hormones change, you get postmenopausal, the estrogen levels and testosterone and androgen levels all change. And so, you know, there's some um, genetics there, and then some hormone stuff there, and it all mixes together to make us little hairs on our chinny chin chins. So yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> that is we have a lot to look forward to. 
<laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> not the best, not the best news, but the good news is we've got lots of stuff to treat it now. So you can come in and get your hair treated. So we'll talk about that. Um, I just want to touch before we get to treatment. How about in pregnancy? Is, is it something that you also see gets worse in pregnancy? And, you know, women who are pregnant can't have certain treatments. So what do you recommend that they they do about it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I see it a lot in pregnancy, but I don't think it's necessarily um, worsening in pregnancy. I think it's, you know, worsens a little bit after, you know, so after you have the baby, sometimes you can see a rev up of the, of the hormones. So I have a lot of women who have polycystic ovarian syndrome, they'll do fertility work to get pregnant, for instance, and then it will be in a, you know, in a phase where they're doing really good after treatment, you know, and I, we'll go into that later. And then after they have the baby, they'll come back in, you know, usually it's a year later or nine months later, you know, and I mean, it'll just be revved up, you know, but during pregnancy, it's like pretty good. Like your hair grows really nicely on your head. Your face looks beautiful, you know, but by the same token, you, you can have someone that has some worsening of hair growth during pregnancy. It's probably a little bit on the rare side. It's just the same as I'll see sometimes people with really, really horrible acne during pregnancy. You know, it's something that's so difficult to treat because you do obviously want to take care of the patient and the baby. And so you have to kind of wait a little bit before you can really get in there and treat. But I have some women that get the most horrible cystic acne and sometimes they can have a little hair growth along with that. But most of the time it's pretty well controlled during pregnancy. So what medication should be avoided? Um, They say that skin irritation from retinoic acid can cause hirsutism. Is this a true fact? Um, And what should women avoid? I don't think so. I don't think retin-A does it. I think, you know, (laughs) this is all genetics. This is all hormonal. It's all coming from the inside. You're not making any of this happen from the outside. So I think um, there's really not anything to avoid (laughs) other than, um, you know, hormone taking like testosterone. I think don't use testosterone creams. Don't use testosterone orally. I have um, people who go to functional medicine physicians and I don't have anything against functional medicine physicians, but they're oftentimes um, playing with your hormone levels. And I will see uh, both hair loss in the scalp and hair growth on the face, you know, when they start all that um, you know, teetering around with hormone levels. So I think you have to be very careful. You know, you certainly might get energy from testosterone, but if you have facial hair, you're going to be, you know, walking a tightrope trying to keep your hair growth down and you're, you know, you might have energy to do all kinds of things, but you still have to spend your energy taking your hair off if you, you know, take hormones. So I, I'm very careful about, you know, recommending that people talk to the primary care doctor. And if they really do have hormonal abnormalities, recommend they see you know, a fellowship trained endocrinologist, because, you know, I think that you can do a lot of damage, you know, it's kind of monkeying around with hormones. So I would avoid that, you know, kind of those um, unknown, uh, you know, things that people take when they're trying to exercise and build muscle and all that. I, I would probably avoid it. If, if you don't know what's in it, you shouldn't take it. Um, and, uh, and those are the, and then they also have these, like, I have a lot of pe- people now are telling me they go to these functional medicine doctors, get these pellets, you know, hormone pellets implanted. Please don't let anybody implant pellets of hormone into your body. <laughs> that is not a good recommendation. And, um, you know, it's not going to, it's, it's like an anti-aging kind of treatment. And it's really um, a poor, poorly studied practice. And so until we get more information, I think we should all um, avoid that. 
Thank you for sharing that. So let's get to the um, moment that a lot of people are waiting for, and that's talking about treatment options. Mm-hmm. What is first line um, for hirsutism, and what do you typically use on your patients? First line, by and large, is going to be laser hair removal. Uh, but the caveats with laser hair removal is that you have to have the right laser for the right patient uh, skin color. So for our fair skin patients, we're using diode laser. For our darker skin patients, we're using NDYAG laser. Um, and the and the other caveat is that you have to have dark hairs. So unfortunately for people out there who have gray hairs, the laser can't see that. You know, the lasers work by being attracted to a color and they don't see white. So um, we, we can't treat you with a laser anyway if we're doing um, laser hair removal. So that has revolutionized uh, hair on the face. I mean, I, you know, trained in a time where there were no lasers really other than um, um, uh, uh, post dye laser for um, uh, hematologic abnormalities. And I mean, that was pretty much all we had. And thank goodness, you know, Roxley Anderson and his, you know, ever amazing mind, you know, kind of figured out this whole chromophore thing for hair. And of course we started out with, you know, these Ruby lasers and then went to Alexandrite lasers and now we've sort of honed it down to diodes and NDAG. And so that's that's what's gonna be your first choice. You wanna to go to somebody who knows what they're doing with lasers, not just your, you know, laser place on the corner next to the bike shop mm-hmm. in the Chipotle, <laughs> you know, that may or may not work for you. I mean, they may be actually mm-hmm. well-trained but oftentimes they're back office people that are given a little bit of a course and then they, you know, they turn the laser way down. So you might get some epilation and a hair goes away, but it doesn't stay away. And that particularly happens in darker skin people because they, when they first started doing all these little laser shops on the corner, um, they were burning people. So now they know better. They turn the laser way down, but they don't give you lasting results. So you really want to go to somebody who is this, you know, board certified dermatologist, knows what the heck they're doing with the laser, has experience um, in your particular skin color, and can really give you the best outcome. And everybody's going to be different in how they do with lasers. Some people who have a lot of hair, it's going to take a lot of treatments. Um, people who have polycystic ovarian syndrome, if their hormones are, you know, still pumping, you're going to have to have, you know, really good maintenance. So get your six to 10 treatments, depending on how severe your hair is. And you may need to follow up every six months, you know, with, with laser hair treatment because those hormones are still pumping, but you'll never be, um, you'll never have as much hair as you had before you start. So it's laser, we think of it as permanent hair reduction. Um, now, for the white haired people, what can you do? Well, there still is electrolysis. Um, electrolysis was the way we treated in the good old days. I went to a small practice in, um, in Tennessee because there was hardly any place to learn how to do electrolysis when I came out. I really wanted to treat people you know, with hair, for their hair growth. So I went to this little practice in, in a little town in, in, in uh, uh, Eastern Tennessee and they taught me how to do electrolysis. I taught a couple of people. And then I ran into um, an, an electrolysis ordinaire, extraordinaire who lives uh, here in the, in the area. And she partnered with us for uh, many years where our partnership just ended during the whole COVID nonsense, you know, so everything has changed, you know, since COVID. But um, she for years would come over and, and treat our patients um, every uh, Thursday, all day uh, for those people who had just a few hairs or white hairs. And she still has practices in town. So luckily we can still send our, our patients to her to her there. So the good news is that you can maybe find somebody who still knows that technique and can do it safely in your area and just partner with them. Or you can bring someone in and teach them. Obviously you could do that too. 
Right. And um, slower is slower. You know, it takes a lot longer, but you can do any kind of hair anywhere on the body and um, it, it just takes a really long time, but you, you know, you, it can work. So those are kind of how we do with the lasers and, 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 you know, some sort of invasive treatment, but you can also work with um, topical. So there's a topical medication called aflornithine. Uh, we did the research on that topical medication, which is a brand name Vanica years and years ago. It's changed hands a bunch of times. And unfortunately now it's very prohibitive in terms of cost. I don't know who even makes it, but it's, uh, you know, ranging in $140, $150 for a tube. Um, but it slows the growth of hair and it can work really well. And you can do use it along with laser um, if you can get it for your patient. Um, another way you can do it is spironolactone. Spironolactone um, orally, um, obviously is a drug for blood pressure control as a diuretic, but it binds to the um, male hormone receptors on those hair follicles and can slow the growth of hair. So obviously if you're doing spironolactone or Vanica, those are not going to be reducing your hair long-term, you know, when you stop them, you know, it'll return to the normal baseline, but they're helpful uh, treatments. And certainly we have people who can't either afford to do laser, don't have time to do laser, too young to do laser, you know, lots of different reasons. So you know, those are good things for, for our patients if we need to use them. And you didn't mention um, <clears throat> oral dutasteride or how about oral contraceptives? Are these still yeah. medications you consider um, or even finasteride when when you come when someone comes in and may not want to do laser and they want an oral yeah, therapy. Unfortunately, finasteride and dutasteride don't work great for hair facial hair growth, so I don't use those for that. I do use it off label for um, pattern hair loss, um, and and it obviously it's on label uh, finasteride is on label for male pattern hair loss. But no, I don't feel like those work very well for facial hair. Unfortunately, um, on the other hand, uh, you know, oral contraceptives can be very helpful. Again, you know, not long term. If you get off of them, you know, your hormones revert back to what their normal baseline levels are. But um, so that could be that could be helpful. And that's actually, you know, if you look at the data, it's actually first line, but relatively um, few patients will want to do that if they're not already on them. And I don't manage people's oral contraceptives because I don't do vaginal exams. Uh, you know, some people feel very comfortable with that, especially, you know, doing it for acne and that sort of thing. Um, at this point, I usually don't do that. But if they, but people, people, patients tell me all the time, you know, when I was on it, my hair growth was more, was more organized and regulated. And as soon as I got off, you know, things went crazy and, you know, that sort of thing. So it can be helpful. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. McMichael, for sharing this with us today. I think a lot of people will find it interesting. I know I certainly do. And it was lovely speaking to you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Hannah. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Durham Club podcast. If you found the discussion today to be valuable, please subscribe and share. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode as we continue to delve into dermatology and skincare with the world experts.